Today's scripture reading comes from Acts 9, 1 through 19. It is on page 777 and 778 in your pew Bible. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you, need, what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by, by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man from Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he, he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. I see that a good bit of the choir is on the construction mission trip, which is great. Have other people on the app trail mission trip and others, so continue to remember all of them in prayer. Well, this is the last in a series called Breathe Holy Spirit Acting Through Me. It's kind of a play on our annual theme, our whole year's theme for 2017, which is Breathe Holy Spirit Moving Through Me. But since all these passages have been in the book of Acts, and because it has to do with us acting on our faith, we decided to call this series Holy Spirit Acting Through Me. And this morning we talk about empowering me to go where it's uncomfortable. Edward Kimball was an unassuming mild-mannered Sunday school teacher. One of his Sunday school students was 17 years old and kind of a rebel and really resisted going at all. In fact, he very much uh, did not appreciate being pushed to go by his uncle who made him go to Sunday school every Sunday. And so he already had a bad attitude. And Edward Kimball was a bit intimidated by this young man. Nevertheless, he sensed the Holy Spirit telling him to go and share the gospel with this young man, and he resisted it for a time, but then could resist it no longer. And on April 21st, 1855, he went to the shoe store where this young man was a clerk, and he began to talk to him about Jesus Christ, began to challenge him to become open to 
his faith in Christ, and, and this young man was taken aback. He was really surprised by this man's boldness, and out of that, he gave his life to Christ that day and vowed that each day that he lived, he would share the gospel with at least one person. That young man's name was D.L. Moody. Some people call him Dwight L. Moody, probably the most influential uh, evangelist in the English-speaking world other than Billy Graham, an amazing, amazing evangelist. The thing was, Kimball was willing to let the Spirit take him to a place and to a person where it was unbelievably uncomfortable for him, given his own temperament, and yet he followed the Spirit's leading. I can tell you about another unassuming man, similar to Charles Kimball. Now, you're familiar with the Apostle Paul. I mean, you talk about someone who has influenced millions even to this day and no doubt beyond. But are we familiar enough with the person who empowered Paul to have that profound influence upon, really, all the world? It's still there 2,000 years later. And he did this after the Holy Spirit told him to go to a place that was uncomfortable, that was uncertain, That was really daunting in many ways, and yet the Spirit led him, and he did go. And his name was Ananias. The Holy Spirit challenged him to go to a place that was uncomfortable, and yes, he went. And it was because of Ananias' faithfulness and openness to the Spirit that Paul wound up influencing so many. So this quiet, obscure figure from the book of Acts has himself influenced millions Now, Ananias has influenced millions in many ways. First of all, he was devout. He was devout. Let's look at Acts 22, 12. Paul, and he's talking about Paul here. In fact, this is Paul speaking and sharing his testimony. And he says, a man named Ananias lived there. Already, I think it's so cool that Ananias becomes a part of Paul's testimony that he shares in the book of Acts. Paul says, a man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man, deeply devoted to the law, and well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. Now, it first of all says that he was godly. It says he was godly and devoted. Now, what does it mean to be godly? What made him godly? Well, you and I would probably compare it to the word integrity today. The word godly there really reflects our own word integrity in the English language. And integrity means what? I've shared that many times here. Look at the word integrity, and you see that it could be the beginning of the word integrated. And and that's what integrity means. It's really rooted in the Latin word integritas, and it means to be a well-integrated individual. Uh, It means to have all these virtues that God wants you to have within yourself, which always leads me to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. Many of you all have that memorized. The question is whether or not you and I really live that out, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. And so it's one thing to have these inner virtues that make us godly people, but it's another thing to act upon that and make ourselves godly by how we behave, by executing that inner godliness. And Henrietta Mears was a big uh, proponent of that. Henrietta Mears was one of the real founders of what we call Sunday school. She became a Sunday school teacher at uh, First Presbyterian uh, Church in Hollywood, California. And in her first two and a half years there, Sunday school went from 400 to 4,000. And this was some time ago. It really was an amazing thing. You see her here with Billy Graham and Bill Bright, the founder of uh, Campus Crusade. Just an amazing, amazing woman. And people always described her as godly, which she didn't care for. 
But then some interviewer asked her, what do you think it means to be godly? And she said this, love when you expect no love in return, do good without expecting thanks, lend when you do not hope for a return. This will make us act like the sons and daughters of the Most High. Now that looks very practical and doesn't have a lot of spiritual language attached to it, but I think that's great. It's a means by which we show ourselves to be godly in this world. But it also says that Ananias was deeply devoted. That verse says that he was deeply devoted. Now, what does that mean? How was he deeply devoted? Well, he was willing to take the gospel into an uncomfortable situation. He's told to go to Straight Street, wherever that is, and go find a guy named Judas. Go to his home, and at that home would be Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, Lord? Yes, Saul of Tarsus. Now, Ananias knew about Saul. This is Saul who persecuted Christians incessantly. Saul who approved of the stoning of Stephen. Saul who uh, was carrying extradition papers. If you look at the beginning of Acts 9, he was carrying extradition papers to the city of Damascus so he could arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial hopefully to put them in jail and maybe even have them executed. And this is who the Holy Spirit tells Ananias to go see. Ananias, being a Jewish Christian, says, Lord, I don't know if you know about this guy. You know, you, Do you know who he is? And obviously God does, and God says go to him. But he resists it at first, but then he follows the Spirit's leading. God tells him to go, and he goes. Now, we're going to be honoring our high school grads, as, as you know, uh, in the second hour. And, and I, I no doubt want to ask them, you know, you're going to go into some situations soon where your faith is going to be challenged. You're going to be in some situations where you're tempted to just look away or not take a stand or just give in. And what are you going to do at that point? And are you going to take a stand and be as deeply devoted to Christ as you claim to be, and as we hope you will be. But we can obviously apply that to all of us, all of us here. When was the last time you took an uncomfortable stand for Christ? Maybe stepped out and actually shared your faith with someone else at the risk of being rejected. Ananias proved that he was deeply devoted. Well, how about us? Because we could influence a host of people as well. So Ananias influenced people because he was deeply devout, but also he pursued his goal. That's another way he wound up influencing millions. He pursued his goal. Let's look at Acts 9, verse 17. It says, So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Spirit. Now, scary as it was for Ananias to go into this intense uncertain situation. He acted on what he knew was the ultimate goal, that others might come to Christ, that others might be filled with the Spirit, that is to be saved, and nothing got in the way of that. Nothing. You know, you never know, and let me just say this, if you're willing to go and share in an uncomfortable place or to an uncomfortable person, you never know how mundane an exchange about your faith might make a difference. It might feel utterly awkward, and we've talked about that in here before, that we need to feel called to be awkward out there in the world, but be willing to do so because you never know when an exchange could wind up saving someone, rescuing someone, 
who's not only in spiritual blindness like Paul was, in physical blindness like he was at that time, but also spiritual lostness. I remember back in May of 2002 reading this article, and I, I just found it both amazing and sort of humorous. It's, it was about Leonardo Diaz, who was a Colombian hiker. He was, a, he was a, an experienced hiker, not an experienced climber, and he came to realize that there was a difference between the two. But his goal one weekend was to reach the summit of the Nevado del Ruiz, which is a volcano. There's a picture of it. It's a volcano in Argentina in the Andes Mountains. Well, the second day of the climb, a blizzard hit. And he, being the inexperienced climber, he got separated from the rest of the climbers. Couldn't see them, lost sight of them for hours, and wound up being all alone. And here this novice climber, after a while, ran out of rations... And he was in this bitter cold for a number of days. And he had a cell phone in his backpack, but keep in mind this was 2002. How many of y'all remember prepaid phones? Do you remember prepaid phones? And he had a prepaid phone, but he was out of prepaid minutes. They had expired. So he had no way to signal for help. And Diaz realized he wasn't going to make it. He was going to die. So he decided to just lie down in the frigid snow and prepare to die. He had not been lying there long before his cell phone rang. And it was Maria del Bastos, a phone solicitor for Bell South in Bogota. And she she wanted to know if Diaz was interested in purchasing more minutes. Well, Diaz described her later on as an angel from God. He described his location to her. He said, well, could you please contact my family so they can contact a rescue unit? And sure enough, a rescue team came along. She could also tell, though, that, that by the sound of his voice, the hypothermia was already uh, setting in, and so she called him every few minutes just to make sure that he was okay, to check on him, to give him hope. And it was some seven hours later that rescuers came along, and he survived, was rescued. Now, let me angle this in a way. How do you usually respond to a phone solicitor or a telemarketer? When you get a call from one of them, how do you respond? It's not positive, is it? Well, you might fear that you're going to get that same reaction when you speak openly about your faith. And for some people, it will be like that. When you share your faith in Jesus Christ, they're going to look at you as if they're looking at a telemarketer and just want to shut you down. And yet, and yet, you never know when such an exchange has the power to rescue someone. Don't underestimate ever the power of the Holy Spirit to have a transforming experience, not just in your life, but in terms of how the Spirit can use you to reach someone else. That should be our ultimate goal, even if it is a little uncomfortable, a little bit awkward. And Ananias knew that. And because of that, he wound up influencing Millions, and yet there's another way that he did so. There's another way he influenced millions. Thirdly, he did not wait. He did not wait. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 15. But the Lord said, go. Now, this is after he has resisted and said, I don't think, I don't feel led to go talk to Saul of Tarsus of all people. But he says, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, which he does, as well as to the people of Israel. He doesn't want to go at first, but when God says go, he goes. Willing to walk into that scary situation, not knowing what was going to happen, willing to, yes, risk his life for it. Which begs the question, how much are you and I willing to sacrifice for the sake 
of sharing the kingdom of God with other people? Are you willing to sacrifice? Which leads me to a nonprofit organization I hadn't heard about until just recently. Some of you had already heard about it. I was talking to Caitlin about it just the other day, and she said, oh, yeah, I've heard of it. And and how many of y'all have ever heard of Mars One? Anybody ever heard of Mars One? Fascinating. It's a nonprofit that has set this lofty goal of establishing a human colony on Mars by the year 2027. And they plan to send four pioneers to begin it all as a test group and then add four more volunteers every two years. Now, there's a lot of sacrifice involved. If you're going to volunteer for this, first of all, you have to pay a small fortune just to go. Secondly, just the one-way trip takes seven months, so that won't be easy. You also have to live in confined quarters. Now, they show a simulation of it here, but actually, that's after you've already got a number of people there. When you first get there, you're probably going to be in one of those pods, and that's it. So you'll be in a confined place for a long time. Now, that's enough sacrifice, I would think. But the most striking prerequisite that I saw was that there are no return flights, Volunteers need to be willing to die on the planet of Mars. Now, students at MIT, I read an article more recently, and they estimated that if somebody goes with this Mars One program, that people who even uh, make it safely to Mars will die within 68 days. And and that has to be verified and all. But they're like, no, it doesn't sound like a great way, uh, a great thing to uh, commit yourself to. But despite all of this, it's been amazing that Mars One has had no problem attracting people. In fact, the article I read is said that they have, they have had no problem attracting, quote, highly educated people willing to die on another planet. They have received more than 200,000 video applications. And, and there's this meticulous screening process, and then they brought it down to about 2,000 people, and then about 600 people, and now there's about 100 volunteers that they're continuing to screen and everything. But 200,000 people are like, yeah, I'm willing to do that. No problem. The Mars One website gives this advice, though. It says, once on Mars, there are no means to return to Earth. Mars is home for you from then on. A grounded, deep sense of purpose will help each astronaut maintain his or her psychological stability and focus as they work together toward a shared and better future. That's Mars One. Now, let me ask us this. If people are willing to lay down their lives and risk such sacrifice for a non-return trip to Mars, how much more should disciples of Jesus be willing to follow him wherever he leads? No excuses, no waiting around, just willing to go wherever he might lead. And Ananias didn't wait. You know, he could have passed on it, but, but he did not. And because of that, he passed on his motivation to Saul. And Saul shares this again in his testimony, Acts 22, verses 15 and 16. Uh, he's sharing his testimony here, and he says, This is what uh, Ananias said to me. You, Paul, are to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard. What are you waiting for? This is Ananias speaking to Paul. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized, just like Harper was this morning. Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of Jesus. Ananias influenced Paul, and ultimately, because of that, Paul influenced millions of people, continues to do so even today. And one of the most effective means by which Ananias made a difference, and I just think this is so cool because Paul bears it out in Acts 22 through 26, is 
that Ananias finally became a part of another's testimony. He influenced millions because he became a part of another person's testimony. You know, three times in Acts 22 through 26, Paul shares his testimony, basically. He stands up to speak before Festus, first of all. And then later on, he appears before the Sanhedrin. And then he appears finally in Acts 26 to King Agrippa. So he shares his testimony often and without inhibition, mentioning Ananias in his testimonies. And let's read from Acts 26. This was the last time that he shared his testimony. And so King Agrippa, whom he is speaking, remember there was this prophecy from Ananias, you will speak before kings, and he does. Speaks before King Agrippa and all the party that was there. He said, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I preached first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea and also to the Gentiles that all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove that they have, that they have changed by the good things they do. Some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this and they tried to kill me. But God has protected me right up to this present time so I can do what? Stand here and testify to everyone. From the least to the greatest, I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead and in this way announce God's light to Jews and to Gentiles alike. And I think it's so cool that each time when he gives a testimony, he shares Ananias' name, calls on him as the one who helped him come to a knowledge of Christ, someone who ministered to him after he'd been struck down on the Damascus Road. You know, when I was younger, I remember being in the youth group at Crescent Hill Baptist Church, and I was a young youth with all kinds of dreams and and just a big head and thinking I was going to go out and uh, do all these things and be a success and and show my competence and show my my prestige and all my skills and everything. And, and, you know, uh, it was good that I wound up hearing a youth evangelist one day say this, because I always wanted to get a doctor by my name. I don't know why, but I always did, I guess because my dad had it. But I remember sitting there as I listened to this youth evangelist, and toward the end of his sermon, he said, what do you want, a title or a testimony? What do you want, a title or a testimony? And I'll never forget that. I thought, what greater privilege would it be that someone, when they share about their faith in Jesus, invoke your name as having had a part of it? What's greater than that in terms of of some kind of reward that you can receive here on earth, let alone later on in eternity? When I ask young people today, what will you consider your greatest success? Will it be having a, a, a doctor by your name or graduating with honors or having a great job, having a nice car, having a big house, having a big bank, having prestige? You know, what drives you the most? In terms of success, what if it would be to become a part of someone else's Christian testimony? Do you realize what a ripple effect that could have? Would you be willing to get into some awkward exchange for the sake of possibly becoming a part of that person's pilgrimage to faith in Jesus? Because it has to do with eternal life. What's more important? 
Edward Kimball, I mentioned early on, the shy, mild-mannered, unassuming Sunday school teacher, went out on a limb and shared his faith with a teenage shoe salesman named D.L. Moody, led him to faith. D.L. Moody wound up impacting thousands and thousands of people for the faith. And though he was poorly educated, one night there was a guy hearing uh, D.L. Moody preach, and his name was F.B. Meyer. And F.B. Meyer, who was a brilliant scholar, realized, I need to have more of a heart faith. And he, he kind of went from being a professor to an evangelist. And he wound up going on tour, leaving the United Kingdom and coming over to the U.S. and being a part of revival services. And one night, while he was preaching, there was a discouraged, cynical gentleman that was out in the audience named Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman heard the Word of God that really pierced his heart that night, and he became an evangelist himself. His ministry grew to where he needed an assistant, and so he got this fellow who just had a high school degree who was a former baseball player named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday wound up leading at least a million people to Christ. There was one evening where he started a prayer group to pray for who would really kind of pick up the mantle once he retired. They were in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time, and they prayed about that. And a man named Mordecai Ham stepped forward and said, I will take the mantle. Mordecai Ham, who was a little lesser known, but nevertheless went and preached. And one night he was again in North Carolina and preached one night when a 16-year-old farm boy gave his heart to Christ that night. His name was Billy Graham. And it goes on and on. The chain continues even to this day. And you could say it began when this unassuming Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball went and witnessed to D.L. Moody. But no, that chain really started much earlier than 1855. You could say that it began mid-century, mid-first century, when Ananias came and spoke to Paul and ministered to him. I love this painting of Ananias and Paul. Uh, that's Paul, and that's Ananias helping the, the, the blindness fall like scale from his eyes, as you read in Acts chapter 9. I just like it because Paul, you see. Ananias, all you see is his hand, really, his arm there. In other words, he doesn't really get to be in the picture. He doesn't get to be the one uh, uh, to get the airtime. But it doesn't matter. And there's no doubt it didn't matter to Ananias, because Ananias knew that it didn't even begin with him. It began on a Friday back in A.D. 30, when the very Son of God endured the ultimate discomfort, the ultimate pain for you and me. Well, some of you need to hear the words of Ananias this morning, and I just want to put them back up where he says, now what are you waiting for? I mean, he says that to Paul, but maybe he's saying that to you this morning. Now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and have your sins washed away, calling on the name of of the Lord. And maybe you've already been baptized, but maybe you need to make a renewed commitment to Him in some way this day. It might feel a little awkward. It might feel a little uncomfortable, but you know, you never know how the Spirit will use you if you let yourself do just that. Let's pray together. Thank you, O God, for the witness of Ananias, someone we don't think about very often, and yet one who was a key individual in the spiritual life of Paul, becoming a part of Paul's testimony. Lord, may we make that a goal in our lives that in some way, shape, or form, we can become a part of either the spoken testimony of someone or at least the life testimony of someone who has come to a saving knowledge of you. 
Lord, we pray for those who are out on mission right now, finding themselves hopefully in uncomfortable and awkward situations, that they might share what they know about your kingdom. But we pray as well for ourselves here, and we petition that you would help to make us a more faithful people, a people more willing to step into those places where we know your Spirit is leading us. And help us to question ourselves simply, what am I waiting for? What am I waiting for? Amen.